Welcome to the Calvary Couples Podcast. We will be beginning a new series in the book of Colossians for the next uh, five lessons or so. We're going to theme it all around uh, making Christ first, giving Christ first place in our life. And each one of the lessons is going to kind of expound upon that. You know, Colossians confronts us right out of the gate with the fact that the word the scripture uses is that Jesus Christ is the preeminent one or the one who should have first place uh, in all things. And we live that out in certain ways, and we're confronted by that in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 9 and work our way through the rest of the chapter. You know, when Paul's writing to the church in Colossae, it's a, it's a town that's very close to uh, a city you also might be familiar with named Ephesus. In fact, you might call it like the, the younger or the younger brother of Ephesus, one that doesn't quite have the same glory as the great city of Ephesus d- did. But as far as the church, when church was concerned, had great significance. Um, there's a person that's referenced in the first chapter of Colossians, and his name is Epaphras. And it's probably the reason that Paul is writing this letter is he's getting some questions from this Christian in the church named Epaphras, and he's responding to a lot of the questions that that he has for him. Um, so he's kind of uh, carrying the good news from Paul back to the church, and Paul's going to confront some things about false teaching. And he's probably writing this letter from prison, likely in Rome, Um, And that's why Epaphras is seeking him out to get his advice and then bring this letter back to the church. So the first thing that Paul confronts us after we get from the opening greeting in the first eight verses and we get to verse nine is that as believers, we have a responsibility to keep growing and knowing by living out God's will. And this is how we, uh, at a very fundamental level, put Christ first in our lives. So he shares with these folks in Colossae that he's praying for them. You read that in verse 9, and he's praying specific things for them. He's praying that um, that they'll grow intentionally, that they'll grow spiritually. He's telling them about his hopes and his expectations. He wants them to know the fullness of God's will. He also is praying for them for spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul is targeting his prayers uh, kind of in the lives of the Colossians that they would that they would live a certain way. And he describes what that way is. The way he wants them to live is a way that is worthy of the Lord. In fact, he says to them to walk worthy. And that's what God finds pleasing. What, what are the things that God finds pleasing about my life and about your life? What he finds pleasing is that we are growing in the knowledge of him. And when we grow in the knowledge of him, we produce fruit. And the kind of fruit that we produce is what is described here as the fruit of every good work. So the Colossians would come to know more as they were doing. You see, one of the big false teachings that's happening in the church that we'll get to is that they were using knowledge as, a, as an ends, not as a means. It was that getting knowledge was the goal, but that's never the goal in the Christian life. Gathering knowledge is only useful as we use the knowledge to grow in God's grace and produce fruit. So Paul's telling them to continue in that work faithfully and obediently. Immediately we move in on verse 15, and he uses this, this, this part from verse 15 to verse 20 is just packed with theological density, if I could put it that way. There's just so much here that we couldn't possibly unpack. And likely this is probably one of the early Christian hymns that the church was singing so they could teach themselves about the Lord, about who Jesus was, about the, the, the Messiah they found in the Old Testament. And now that we have learned more about in the full revelation of the New Testament. So when Paul wrote that Jesus was the image of the invisible God, he's using the word from which we get our modern word icon. And if you're, you know, been using a computer since Windows was produced, you are familiar with the term icon. And it means more than just a picture or a collections of pixels on a computer screen. It actually portrays uh, something or someone. So Christ is the firstborn over all creation, 
does not mean, this is very important, it does not mean that God created Jesus first. Jesus is the iconic image of the true invisible God. Jesus is in the second person of the Trinity, is co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He didn't have any beginning, no more than God the Father had. Otherwise, he wouldn't be the icon or the image of the true invisible God. So in Paul's world, the firstborn of a family, this is why the firstborn language is significant, had the rights that the siblings and others in the family did not have. So Christ has rights over all creation. So why such rights and supremacy? Because Jesus created it all. There wasn't a gradual progression from design, divine existence to material existence. No nearly infinite chain of beings go between God and the material world. Jesus brought it all into existence. This was some of the false teaching that was happening in the pagan world that this, this church was living in. The material world as well as the spirit world was all created by Jesus. In fact, without Jesus, the things of this world, as verse 17 tells us, wouldn't even hold together. So God is underlining for the Colossians, remember, Jesus is first. He's, he's first in our lives. He's first in every area, but he's also first in creation. By raising Jesus from the dead, the first one to do so without having to experience death a second time, he rose from the dead to reign supreme over all other material and spiritual worlds of all sorts. And that's significant. Think about this for a second. You might say, well, why is Jesus significant in the act of creation? Didn't, doesn't the word of God say in the beginning God created? Absolutely it does. But it also says that he spoke these things into existence. The word of God says in each day that God said, let there be, and there was. Now we must jump into the chapter of 1 John to unpack even more significance about that because John, uh, the apostle John tells us that um, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That word, which is described later for us in John chapter 1, is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So there at the very beginning we see Jesus Christ evident at creation when God is speaking, he's speaking words that spoke things into existence. Who is the eternal word? Jesus Christ is the word. Jump to Colossians chapter 1, and here we are, that all things, he's the firstborn of all creation. All things are created by him and for him, and he holds the worlds together. So as we realize that Jesus Christ is the preeminent one in our lives, we jump to how do we put that to action? Well, what did Jesus do? So the scriptures tell us in Philippians that he humbled himself, even though he had all authority, even though he is worthy of all glory and he's worthy of all worship, he still died to reconcile us to God. And that is our fundamental motivation for serving Jesus. So what Paul was informing the Colossians is that they had at once been enemies of God, not just in thought, but also in deed. You see, evil deeds spring up from evil thoughts and evil thoughts also come from committing evil deeds. It really is a cycle. The more we sin, the more sinful our thoughts, and the more sinful our thoughts, the more sinful we are. But Jesus came to change that. He came to reconcile us, and that accomplishes something brand new. Remember, Jesus is the one who cre is the creator, right? He is the one that's the firstborn of all creation, the one who speaks new creation into existence. Now Paul's saying to the church, now through Jesus, you are a new creature. You are a new creator. You don't have to go, in, you're a new creation. You don't have to go and walk in the same way you used to walk. You walk in a new way. And God sees us in a brand new way. We know that God loves us despite all of our blemishes and all of our flaws. He sees us as holy, though, blemish-free and beyond accusation. So I have to sit back and ask myself, how is that even possible? Does God need glasses? Is his eyesight defective? Of course not. 
It comes to mean that in God's sight, Jesus Christ's worth and value and merits have become ours. His righteousness is our righteousness, not because we've earned it or we deserve it, but because he has, <coughs> excuse me, lovingly um, offered all of this as a covering to us. We want to make sure that those who come after us understand how God sees all believers. He sees us holy without spot and without accusation. There's nothing that our enemy, the devil, can do to accuse us before God that will ever penetrate what Jesus Christ has done at the cross. The ordinary is often a stumbling block to those who only wish to deal with the high, lofty, and universal. Remember, the Colossians had a love for knowledge. Not knowledge to be used to bear fruit, just knowledge as an ends. But the man Jesus had no special godlike appearance and was even crucified. Remember when in the Gospels it said he wasn't, he wasn't anything special to look at. And this led many to reject him. He wasn't that Herculean gladiator-like figure that they were expecting to bring them to victory over the Roman Empire. He was ordinary in his humanity. And that became a stumbling block. Even today, Satan accuses believers of all manner of evil. And we have nothing special to claim in our defense, nothing but the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. Salvation came through one particular human being, the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, in whom God's fullness made his perfect home. It says he dwells there. It didn't say he, God's fullness passed through. God's fullness lived there. Jesus Christ is the fullness of the image of God. For us, God stepped into our world and became like us, yet lived a sinless, perfect life that he who knew no sin would become sin for us. So today we become Christ's body, the church. We're involved in millions of ordinary things and millions of ordinary human beings, but in God's spirit, he dwells in us. So we must not neglect the faith through which this happens, nor the hope that God makes available to us. As with any obedience, having faith is not something that we do once and then forget about. Just as we must obey moment by moment, we must also continue in faith moment by moment. So we put Christ first by living out in faith moment by moment. And that gives us the description of faithfulness, which is what each of us want to be called at the end of our life, that that was a person who was faithful. It's something we express over time through hills, through valleys, through human experience. But we can never take it for granted. We need to nourish it, to strengthen it in all kinds of varieties of ways. And when times are tough, our faith will be tougher because of Jesus Christ's power and sustaining ability in us through the Holy Spirit of God. Sometimes all we will be able to do is reach out to him, trusting that he will do what we cannot. Is that not the very essence of the gospel? Letting God do what we cannot. And we will persevere when we let him do that. So I encourage you to keep walking with Christ in your faith, firmly planted in him, because he can do things that you and I simply cannot. So let us make Christ first. He is not on the top of the list. He is the list. Everything that you do at your, at your job, in your home, in your community, in your church, all of those things are actions where you can put Christ first and you can show Christ in every area of your life. And I hope that together we'll achieve everything that God has for us. Hope this lesson was helpful. I look forward to studying with you through Colossians, and I look forward to studying with you next time.